from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. I was about to shout, good morning, Vietnam, but I'm not going to do oh, that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. We are back on another episode. Very happy to be here. I think we have a, a listener's comment that we wanted to yes, share Yes, I do want to share this. Hello. Uh, this was just something that was shared on under the Ask Christopher West uh, questions. There was a comment. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. This isn't actually a question. And I'm rather late in sending this, but I wanted to thank you for your answer to my question this past summer. I was rather surprised to see that you were responding to my question. And at first, I wasn't even sure it was my question. I thought maybe someone else had a similar question. But then as Wendy read the question, I recognized my own phrasing. Your words brought me to tears. Wendy, you started your response with a comment that you thought Christopher was letting the Spirit guide his whole response. I agree wholeheartedly. I would argue that the same could and should be said of you. Throughout that segment of the episode, I truly felt as if God was speaking to me and calling me forward. I'm slowly working on taking to heart your recommendations and suggestions for me. I'm sending this now because I listened again last night and throughout felt called to share my deep gratitude with both of you. Know that I'm praying for you and your ministry. Thank you so much and blessings upon both of you and your family. That's awesome. Do we have that person's name? No, no, I don't have a name. Well, dear anonymous listener out there, it just encourages us so much to receive those kind of comments about the podcast, keeps us going. It's a blessing to know this is blessing you. So thank you. And if anybody out there has a story about how this podcast has blessed you or somebody you know, please share that with us. We we just we love to read that. Yeah, like anybody else, we we need to know that what we're doing is making a difference and it's helpful to hear. Thank you. Yeah, we're very, yes, we pray also that just the spirit continues to speak to your heart through many means and happy to be just a part of your journey. So let's jump in. Okay. We have some questions now. This question is from a listener named Sean who says, I was discussing this with my Protestant friend. He says, masturbation isn't wrong if you can do it without lust. In the Bible, it doesn't say that masturbation is wrong, unlike clear-cut homosexuality or fornication. How would you explain it to someone who doesn't exactly share the same Catholic faith as us? Okay, Sean. Bless you, brother. Yeah, well, I gosh, masturbating without lust is like trying to rob a bank without stealing. <laughs> <laughs> masturbation is lust. There's, there's no way around that. And here, maybe we're dealing with different understandings of lust, but a very simple understanding of what lust is, is inverted sexual desire. Mm -hmm. God gave us sexual desire to be the power to love as he loves. And he loves through the gift of himself, which leads to holy communion. This is the meaning of our sexuality. This is the meaning of erotic desire as God created it to be. This is the meaning of sexual pleasure as God created it to be. It's not meant to be an isolated pleasure. It's meant to be the pleasure of a holy communion, a holy communion of persons. Any uh, expression of sexual pleasure that is 
isolated from holy communion is by definition an inversion of sexual desire. And by definition, that is called lust. So masturbation is the epitome of that inversion. It is the epitome of using our genitals not for holy communion, but for isolated indulgence of pleasure. And none of what I'm saying is meant to wag fingers, shame anybody, scold anybody. This is all said to to bring into the light who we are and who we are called to be. We all have to fight uh, fallen inclinations that lead us precisely in the direction of isolating self-gratification. Because the call to Holy Communion involves a huge risk. It's the risk of rejection. I was watching a video recently of uh, my dear, beloved mentor and friend, Monsignor Lorenzo Albacetti, in which he was talking about the risk of love. And uh, we'll see if we can provide a link to this video in the show notes but he, he says the love involves this risk of, of suffering. We open ourselves to the possibility of being hurt. And that's why we withdraw from genuine love so often, because we don't want to be hurt. Our genitals themselves are the sign that we are called to make that risk, that vulnerability. And it's, I was going to say, it's really hard to do that without knowing God's love, but I'm going to go even further and saying it's impossible. It's really impossible to love as God loves if we don't know that love in our own hearts because you can't give what you don't have. Now, that's not to say that an atheist can't learn to love, but if it's genuine love, it's coming from God, whether that atheist knows it or not. Mm. God often remains unacknowledged and unrecognized when he's present but if it is genuine love, if we are making that genuine risk of loving, that comes from God. So just some, some thoughts there about masturbation being, you cannot masturbate without it being in some way a, an act of lust. So I appreciate your answer, and I'm just kind of thinking from you know that aspect of Sean's question where he said someone who doesn't share our Catholic faith mm-hmm. and there was an aspect of your answer where you were kind of defining lust. What is lust? Lust is, or actually even before that, you said, I think God has given us sexual pleasure for communion. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. maybe kind of a a principle of um, understanding sexual morality and where does that principle come from, especially in this kind of Catholic Protestant discussion. Yeah, and, and it doesn't even have to be Catholic Protestant differences, we can we can talk about the immorality of masturbation just from the perspective of philosophy and, and mm-hmm. moral reasoning. Okay. It has no appeal to faith or the Bible at all. Mm-hmm. So let me address that first, and then we can talk about maybe some Catholic Protestant okay. differences. Great. So just on a what we would call an, a natural law level, where we we look at the nature of things and we can recognize there is a design. Uh, We can see this even in things that we make as human beings. Uh, We can look at a boat, and we know it's not meant to fly. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's meant to float. 
Okay. We can look at an airplane and we can say, this is not meant to be a submarine. This is meant to fly. We can mm -hmm. look at a hammer and we say, this is not meant to pound screws in. It's meant to pound nails in. There's a design. When we act against the design of our being, it never goes well. We do not flourish. So when we look at just the natural design of our genitals, we have to ask the question, what are our genitals for? Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, we are, they are called genitals because we readily recognize, not because we read it in the Bible, but because we are intelligent beings and we can recognize there is a design. We call them genitals because they are meant to generate that's sort of understanding their function. Understanding their function, mm -hmm. understanding their purpose, understanding their, their goal, their reason for existing. Mm -hmm. We have genitals to generate. We have eyes to see, right? right. Eyes are meant for seeing. This is, we know this not because it's in the Bible. Mm -hmm. We know it because we're intelligent and we can read the design of our own bodies. Okay. Eyes are meant for seeing. Ears are meant for hearing. Lungs are meant for breathing. Genitals are meant for generating. When we fail to honor and respect the fact that genitals are meant for generating, we degenerate. Mm. We degenerate. And this is largely why we are in a culture that is degenerating. Mm -hmm. Because as a culture, we are failing to recognize that genitals are meant for generating. But, I mean, in relation to our conversation, it might be even more relevant to look at their role in human relationship, which is intimately connected to generating. But, you know, when we talk about like the ends of marriage or something, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, so there, that's the, the Holy Communion part, right. Mm -hmm. right? So Holy Communion, you know, it's kind of a Catholic buzzword. And I use it for a reason because I want us to have that connotation of mm -hmm of sacrament because mm -hmm. marriage is a sacrament right and it's modeled after the holy communion the eucharist can't understand marriage without understanding the eucharist and you can't understand the eucharist without understanding marriage this is right out of scripture for this reason a man will leave his father and mother be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh this is a great mystery and it refers to christ and the church mm. the holy communion of man and woman refers to the holy communion of christ and the church so that's that's a religious frame. That's a biblical frame for right. understanding this idea of Holy Communion. But you don't, again, you don't even need the Bible to recognize how do genitals fulfill their function in generating a new life through the union of male and female. Mm -hmm. That's how it happens. And that union has a value that is the joining of two lives in a, a bond of love, a bond of Unity, a bond of friendship, a bond of intimacy. Again, all of this can be recognized and has been recognized throughout the ages by wise men and women who, with or without biblical faith, can reflect on the order of things and how things flourish. You can look at when you do this, things flourish, things go well. When you do this, they don't. Mm -hmm. Again, masturbation can be understood as something contrary to the flourishing of human beings simply through natural reasoning. But let's look at some of the Catholic-Protestant differences okay. here. Mm -hmm. And there is quite a difference in language. In The language comes from somewhere. 
I've learned to speak both Catholic and evangelical, so to speak here, because I do a lot of work in the Protestant world. And I have a deep respect for our Protestant brothers and sisters. I was in some ways largely evangelized in my 20s by that Protestant ethos. And it was so valuable to me, so life-changing to me. So all of this is said with, with great reverence. But yes, there are differences. And oftentimes, the way Protestants read the Bible, they're looking for proof texts. Mm-hmm. They're looking for some line in Scripture that makes some point they want to make explicitly clear. And if they can't find that one line in Scripture, then, well, the Bible doesn't say so, so therefore. Mm -hmm. And that we're seeing this in the way this question was worded, that, well, the Bible doesn't clearly say masturbation is is wrong. But the Bible, uh, let me rewind here and say, a Catholic view of the Bible is, is different. We're not looking for proof texts. We're looking for the overarching vision of what it means to be human revealed in the concrete realities in the Old Testament of this people called Israel, this chosen people. Mm-hmm. Their, somehow their history, their story is being held up as important for every human being on the planet. There's something particular about the Jewish people that provides a vision for what it means to be human and who God is and how he relates with us. And Israel is longing, longing, longing for the the coming of the Messiah, the one who would save. So right there, there's a recognition in Israel's heart, and every human being has the same recognition. Something's off. Something's wrong. The world is not the way it is meant to be, and I can't fix it on my own. God, make haste to help us. (laughs) This is the cry of Israel. Mm -hmm. So all of this is to say we're Catholics read Scripture looking for the story, it's not that we don't zoom into details and glean much from certain details, but we're, we don't read it as a set of propositions. We don't read it as proof texts for morality. And when you read the scripture this way, you see, for example, we're made in the image and likeness of God. This is one of the main threads of the entire biblical story. We start with this. What does it mean that God blessed them? that God said, be fertile and multiply. In the image and likeness of God, he made them male and female. He created them and he blessed them and he said, be fertile and multiply. If you enter into that and then carry that truth throughout the whole arc of the biblical story, the Bible begins with a wedding, the creation of man and woman in the image of God and the call of the two to be fruitful and multiply. There's a wedding in the Garden of Eden and you carry that arc throughout the whole story, and you end in the book of Revelation with the marriage of the Lamb. So that holy communion of man and woman leads to the holy communion of Christ and the church. This is the arc of the story. And then you realize, oh my gosh, this is stamped right in my body. I am called to holy communion. And the holy communion of man and woman is just a little, 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 little glimmer of the holy communion I am destined for in union with God for eternity. When you understand that, masturbation is the antithesis, the antithesis. If you understand the thesis of the Bible, which is God wants to marry us, and the whole mystery of our humanity is one of holy communion, 
then you will understand masturbation is the antithesis, the antithesis of that call to holy communion. Mm. That comes from two different ways of reading the scripture. I would, I would hold out to those who read scripture looking for proof texts. You're missing the story. Mm. You're missing the invitation. You're missing the riches. You're missing the treasure. It's like you, you, you know, the, the parable of the field and the treasure. Sell everything and buy the field, and then you'll have the treasure. It's like the, 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 that, that truncated reading of the Bible looking for proof texts. You have the field because you have the Bible right there in your hands, but you're not digging for the treasure. Mm. You're, you're just stopping at the surface. You're kind of looking in the grass of the field rather than digging in the dirt to find the, the real gold that is there. So there are different ways Protestants and Catholics read Scripture, understand Scripture, and come to different conclusions. And I'll, I'll hold this out uh, while we're talking about these differences. Coming out just right now in January of 2020. 2020. So just last week, was released a new book of mine called Our Bodies Tell God's Story, uh, Discovering the Divine Plan for Love, Sex, and Gender. That's the subtitle. And this is written specifically for a Protestant audience, mm. recognizing there are differences in language here. Mm-hmm. So I've been speaking in Protestant churches for many, many years, but I know if I hold up my book, Theology of the Body for Beginners, which is written primarily for Catholics, I know there, there's going to be some language in there that a Protestant audience would find difficult or confusing or maybe even present unnecessary stumbling blocks. Mm-hmm. So I've translated my Theology of the Body for Beginners book into evangelical friendly language, language that is, is appealing to Protestants. And I, I quote from their favorite authors uh, to make it all very relatable. So that book is now available. We'll put it in the show notes. So if you yourself are not a Catholic, but you're intrigued by this theology of the body and you want to learn more in in a language that speaks right to you, this is a great resource for you. But if you're a Catholic and you have Protestant family members or friends or coworkers, this is a great, great resource to share with your Protestant friends, family members, et cetera, to introduce them to John Paul's theology of the body. It unfolds it without compromising any of the message, but in a language that is attractive, appealing, and understandable uh, without some of those, you know, Catholic buzzwords. And it has been such a a blessing in our lives, the connections that your mission have allowed with many Protestants and Protestant friends and also other, you know, ministers in the Protestant world who've been praying for this project of yeah. yours with the book and supporting you. We're so grateful so for that. So grateful. It's a very beautiful gift to us. And so we just want to thank you so much that this isn't a book written for Protestants sort of from a total outside perspective, like, here, take this. It's no. been It's been longed for and encouraged from within. That's true, yes. And flowed from a genuine loving relationship. So I think that's a beautiful gift of yeah, this I book. Yeah, I see it as, I say this in the book, I, I see it as kind of repaying a debt that I feel to mm. my Protestant brothers and sisters mm-hmm. who've been such a rich, rich gift in my life. Right. So thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless this book and all those who would read it, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. Yeah. Here's a question from a listener named Danielle. She asks, Should my boyfriend and I wait to get married until we feel ready for children? 
Or can we get married, use NFP, and simply trust that God will only give us a child when He knows we are ready? We really want to get married and begin that chapter of our lives, but the thought of having a child right now is intimidating. Danielle, yes, having children is intimidating. Uh, Even when you've been married a very long time, it remains. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we can affirm that last comment. (laughs) It remains intimidating. So first, let me share some of the the principles uh, that are implicit in your question. And then maybe just some some personal thoughts. And Wendy, I'd love, and I'm sure they would love as well, your personal thoughts. You got it. So... Could you have I, this? I'm going to rephrase the question to to get us to the the meat of it. Could, I love the way you're good at that. You're oh, really thanks. good at getting to the meat of a question. I've always liked that. Oh, thanks, Just a little Wendy. comment for my listeners. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. So here's what I see as the the underlying question. I would rephrase it as follows: Could a newly married couple have a just reason to avoid a pregnancy? So the church says. Not that we are called to have children willy-nilly and just as a result of, uh, you know, chance, but we are called to a responsible exercise of parenthood. And a couple at various stages of their married life might have just reason, that's the language that the catechism uses, couples might have a just reason to avoid a child. There are lots of just reasons could be a financial reason, could be a health reason, could be an emotional, psychological reason, could be that you already have five kids and you're getting really old, like you and me, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> we're not getting really old. Well, we're on the trajectory. I mean, everybody gets really old. We're, oh. yeah. Could be just that time of life where you are old. Um <laughs> So, yeah, lots of just reasons. So, could a newly married couple have certain just reasons? Yes, they could. Uh, When you and I got married, Wendy, we had a just reason. I was in graduate school and you were paying the bills, and it would have been a certain hardship had a child come immediately. Mm -hmm. So, we we practiced natural family planning uh, early in our marriage, and thanks be to God, it worked beautifully for us, and then we conceived our first child right in a time when I was getting employed and mm-hmm. it worked out very well. So yes, it could be, but I want to press in a little bit more, Danielle. In principle, yes, you could have a just reason, but I want to I want to press in a little bit more to that intimidation. As we jokingly said, but we're serious as well, it's always intimidating to have children. Always. What's going on there? I would just invite you and your, I don't know if you're engaged, your fiancé or your serious boyfriend considering to be your future husband, press, press into that. It may be that the Lord wants to bring some healing, bring some peace, bring some hope into that place in your heart. What mm-hmm. are your thoughts, Wendy? Yeah, I think those are great thoughts. And I just, I think, Perhaps, you know, when we're in a relationship and considering marriage, many things can enter into our minds as questions about the timing and the prudence of our entering into the relationship of marriage, which is 
it's a dividing point in our lives, especially if we're on the younger side of getting married. It has a great significance in that way. Maybe someone who's, you know, a little bit older, single, may have kind of traveled through some life transitions mm-hmm. and it may not have the same feeling. But if you're on the young side and considering getting married, it feels very significant. And is this the right time to make this transition? So I understand fully that the question of, you know, well, we really aren't ready for children. Is that God's way of telling us we shouldn't be married yet? And I guess the the simple answer to that question is not necessarily, but that doesn't mean you couldn't discern that as part of a reason to delay marriage. Sure. But it's there's no standard principle out there that would say this is, well, you should only get married if you have discerned you're ready for children. On the other hand, when we are married, we are expressing at the altar our openness to life. We're expressing with our bodies an openness to life that includes the possibility of children. So that's, you know, we aren't permitted to make some kind of deal with God, like, okay, you better not send us a baby when we're not ready. That's right, that's right. not, you can't have that mindset either. And I did read a really touching story once of a couple who married at a time when they discerned that they should avoid pregnancy, and yet conceived, perhaps on their honeymoon, I don't remember the details mm-hmm, of how, mm-hmm. you know, whether there was a misinterpretation of the cycle or just a over, you know, joy about the marriage. Yes, that, indeed. You know, I, I'm not sure what the situation was there, but it turned out that this couple then experienced what we call secondary infertility, that the, after having that wow, baby, wow. they didn't have any more. Wow. And her gratitude wow. for God sending them that baby, um, which was not her timing, you know, wasn't what she would have told God, and yet um, it just gave her perspective on sort of my plans are not your plans and a, a great trust and seeing of God's hand and goodness in that poorly timed yes. pregnancy, at the, it seemed at the time. So those are just thoughts to share. You know, it's understandable that we are really trying to discern, is this the right time for our marriage? And we would certainly pray for anybody in that situation that you would experience deeper peace and trust in the Lord that we don't get everything perfectly right and then kind of prove to the world that we've done it God's way and here, right. look how perfect it all is. That's not our job. We're all, you know, just on our own individual path and doing our best to hear what the Lord is calling us to in our relationship. So we pray for that for you. I know in our experience, Wendy, that we've talked about this many, many times, that it is in our marital union with our fertility surrendered to God that we feel so pointedly there is a God and we're not him. (laughs) And that puts us in a posture, rightly so, of being the creature that must receive from the hands of God his loving wisdom, and as you said, his plans are not our plans. There's something about human fertility and the possibility that this act could lead to another life that rightly orients us in a proper posture as a creature within the universe and before our Creator. We felt it very deeply 
in our marriage. And conversely, you can say, when you render that act sterile, you're not in that posture. You're making yourself like God. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the original sin all over again. You'll be like God's. Right. So, Danielle and your future husband, we encourage you to press into that intimidation. Maybe it's that factor of, oh my gosh, I'm a creature before the Creator, and that's scary. Does God love me? Is His plan what's best for me? I'm not in control. Ah, ah, yes, that's scary. That's intimidating. And it's also beautiful. It's beautiful that God's in control. It's beautiful that God is God and we are not. That's what makes life really awesome. So here's a question from an anonymous husband. He says, we are married and use NFP. My wife is pregnant and I have a minor infection that I could potentially pass on to my wife during intercourse. Is it possible to use a condom during her pregnancy to prevent that? So I just want to, for any listener who doesn't know, and we did talk about this in the last question, but I realized we didn't clarify and by the word letters NFP, what we mean is natural family planning or understanding our cycles and using that to time our intercourse um, to, if we need to avoid pregnancy or in order to achieve it. So little definition of that NFP thrown in there. So it sounds like, uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, they they have embraced the church's teaching. They don't want to use contraception. They haven't used contraception. Now the wife is pregnant. The husband has an unnamed infection of some kind that he's concerned about passing on mm-hmm. through intercourse to his wife. Right. And maybe that could also affect the child, who knows, uh, with whom she's pregnant. Is it okay in this situation to use a condom? And I, I understand the logic She's already pregnant. Right, you're not contraceptive. You're not, you're not preventing a pregnancy because she's right. already pregnant. Can mm-hmm. I use a condom so that she doesn't have a risk of getting this infection that could be passed through my mm-hmm. seed? That's, am I reading this yep. all correctly? Okay. So, there would probably be some moral theologians who, not, not wacky moral theologians who are trying to, to uh, you know, discredit the church's teaching, there would probably be some moral theologians who would conclude that could be okay. I would not be one of them because there's something that the condom does to the act that changes the very nature of the act. The communion that takes place through the marital embrace is consummated by the gift of your seed received in the body of your wife. This is not just biology. And sometimes, especially when we get down to this level where we're talking about body fluids, we can become very, um, I was going to say sterile in our thinking, uh, which might be the right word, who knows. But we can become kind of clinical in our thinking and we can forget the meaning and significance of that exchange of body fluid from passing from one body to the other body. This is the moment of the gift. This is the moment of something from deep within me is now deep within you. 
And when we understand the significance, that's an important word, the significance, the sign value, the significance, the value of that sign, the significance of that exchange, what is the significance of that exchange? What is the sign value? How does Christ save us? How does he enter into holy communion with his bride? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Talk about body fluids and the exchange here. Mm-hmm. His body and blood goes into our body and blood. That's how it works. That's how the holy communion happens. And the union, the holy communion of man and woman really and truly is a sacramental participation in the holy communion of Christ and the church. And in the holy communion of the marital embrace, that gift of seed is what establishes, consummates the holy communion. When we understand the significance here, the thought of giving that seed into a condom rather than the woman's body receiving and absorbing that seed, it changes the very fundamental meaning and nature of the act. And it is no longer the marital act. It's some other kind of act. In fact, it's of the same, these are technical terms of moral theology, but it would be of the same species of masturbation where a seed is given but not received by the wife. I think there is a real link between this question and that first question in the yeah. sense of what you're talking about, n- natural law. Because if we would take this uh, sort of medical mentality and say, well, I'm not actually contracepting here, it actually would lead to any condition of infertility on the wife's part, whether it's pregnancy, postmenopause, or some right. other right. physical condition causing infertility, to sort of justify any um, perversion of sexual activity because it's, quote, not contraceptive. Instead of having this sense of the marital act, not just in technicalities of preventing conception or not, but as God created it to be and as it is human and beautiful. Amen. Preach it. Um, And actually, you may not remember this, but we encountered this very situation in one of our pregnancies. I'm feeling like you don't remember it because you didn't bring it up. (laughs) But I remember it in in, in our third pregnancy. What? 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 What what happened? (laughs) Was I there? (laughs) You were were there. You were there. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't I remember this? I'm very curious to know what you're going to say. What? Yes. So, you know, there... It was in our third pregnancy, and the midwives that were caring for me during that pregnancy, we had an interesting situation because of laws in the state where we lived regarding people who, if say, if we had started out in a home birth and gotten transferred to the hospital, the way that they would regard your prenatal care, you know, sort of a complicated situation that we don't have to go into all of it. But I think it was strep B was the bacteria that they were concerned that you and I could be sharing and how that would affect my care if I happened to go to the hospital, which I didn't, you know, it's all these possibilities that you're dealing with. I'm remembering this now. Yeah. And so their recommendation was the very one that this That I use a condom to... Yes, to kind of help eliminate this possibility of this bacteria being present. And we said, no fue Jose. Right, for these very reasons that we're talking about. And as it turned out, when we presented to the midwives, 
we're not willing to that. Can you, is there another option? They did have another option. And I don't know, you know, that was many years ago. And I don't know what would be recommended right now. I'm not speaking as a medical professional right here, but I do want to say we did experience it and we used betadine solution to kind of clean and, you know, remove hopefully that bacteria. And, you know, it didn't cause an issue for us. It was resolved, but it was interesting that we experienced that recommendation ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Now I remember that. Yeah. Yes, we were married. (laughs) You were there. (laughs) I was there. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to reiterate this one point I made earlier, because I think it's so profound and has been so profound for me as a husband. I want the husbands out there listening and future husbands out there listening to ponder what is happening in the giving of your seed to your wife. Something deep within you is now deep within her. What does that mean? Mm. What is the significance of that? And I'm telling you, if you enter into that and receive that and and live from the profound mystery that that reveals, the thought of giving your seed into a condom will be repulsive. You will want to vomit at the thought. It's like it's it's repulsive because it is a contradiction, a speaking against. That's what contradiction means, to speak against. It speaks against the very significance of the gift. Uh, This is not just biology. Uh, This is not just the exchange of body fluid. This is a great mystery, St. Paul says, and it refers to Christ and the church. Yeah, at that level. Mm. It refers to Christ and the church. This is our faith. Wow. Our bodies are theological. The marital embrace is theological and sacramental. What a great mystery. Thank you, Lord, for making us male and female in your image. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, open our bodies to these glorious truths. Well, on that note. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I do want to invite everybody to keep sending your questions to us. Comments, they all help. Uh, It's such a joy for us to be on this journey with you guys. If you believe in what we're doing, we invite you to go to the website, click the link below to learn more about being a patron of this work and receiving ongoing formation in the theology of the body through our patron community. And I know there are people out there listening to this podcast today are thinking so-and-so needs to hear this. Click that little share button Mm -hmm. and share today's episode with somebody you know needs to hear it. Uh, Consider also, we have this awesome thing coming up, a pilgrimage in August, from August 9th to the 20th. My dear friend and colleague, Bill Dunahy, will be leading a pilgrimage to Italy with Father Leo, the cooking priest. And the pilgrimage is called Feasting on Faith, Food, and Beauty. I just love that idea. It's pretty cool. Yeah, really great food in a really wonderful setting with wonderful people. You're, you're going to be taking in the riches of Italian culture in the art, the music, the food with two very, very insightful, creative, artistic geniuses, Father Leo and Father Bill. So consider that. 
It would be a uh, rich Father blessing. Leo and Bill. He's not a priest. What did, just, I, did I say Father <laughs> you Bill? Did, yeah. <laughs> well, he is a father. Oh, that's true. Just okay. not not in the priestly. <laughs> well, domestic church. He's the priest right, of the Father domestic. Bill. I'll go. Oh, with you're it. right. I was mistaken. <laughs> Remember, everybody, you are an unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.